0: good morning. Thank you for being here uh, this morning, and um, if you're in our overflow room or if you're watching this online right now, thank you for being here as well. Uh, so there is this thing in life. Uh, all of us have experienced this thing, and it is extremely deadly, very dangerous. Um, it can cause all kinds of problems in our lives. In fact, this is This is the number one reason that couples will divorce. Um, This particular thing will ruin your vacation. Um, This thing will cause you to have a miserable time at a party. Uh, This thing will cause you to hate and possibly even quit your job. And this thing is so awful and it is so deadly and it is so dangerous that it can even cause you to hate church and possibly even ruin your relationship with God. So what is this awful, awful thing? It is called unmet expectations. When what you believe will happen or what you hope will happen does not line up with reality, it will cause all kinds of problems in your life. For example, if you are interviewing for a job and the potential employer says to you, by the way, Part of this job will require that you work every other Saturday. If you know that going into the job, then that first Saturday you have to work, you may not like it, but it will not ruin your relationship with that job. It will not cause you to quit your job. However, if that little fact has failed to be mentioned during the interview process and the boss after a week says, by the way, next Saturday you have to work, your tenure with that company might be short-lived. Or let's say that you're getting ready to go on vacation and you want to rent a condo and you look online and you see that this condo faces a parking lot or faces the back of the building and you go on this vacation and you get there and the porch or the patio is facing the back of a building or facing a parking lot, you're fine. You'll continue on the vacation. However, let's say that you expect that you will be looking at the ocean when you go on this vacation and you get there and instead you're looking at the back of a building or you're looking at a parking lot. Your vacation has just been ruined. Last year, Katie and I wrote a book on this particular uh, phenomenon and how it dramatically affects marriage relationships. In fact, we wrote this book called Why Toothpaste Matters and I know that it's an odd title But basically, we wrote about the fact that something as small as toothpaste and what you expect your spouse to do with toothpaste can cause all kinds of problems. You know, she expects him to put the tube back on the toothpaste when he is done. He fails to do that. That happens enough times. And suddenly, they're in front of a marriage counselor talking about how he never listens and how she always nags and all the problems that toothpaste has caused in their marriage. By the way, I realize this is a completely shameless plug for this book (laughs) that is available on Amazon.com right now. (laughs) So this is deadly in all areas of life, but it is really deadly when it comes to our spiritual lives. And when we expect God to come through or God to do something for us and God doesn't do it, we will either grow angry with God or we will simply cut God out of our lives completely. Years ago, I read an article about Vince Neil, the former lead singer for the band Motley Crue. A few of you in here are old enough to remember that band from the 80s and 90s. Uh, He certainly, at that point, was not a follower of Christ. In fact, he may have been the walking personification of hedonism. Um, However, in the early 90s, he had an experience with God that forever changed his life. Uh, In the early 90s, his daughter, who was three years old at the time, was diagnosed with cancer. And even though he was not a religious individual, he spent hours praying that God would heal his three-year-old daughter. That next year, his daughter, at four years old, died. And according to Vince Neal, that was the point that he cut God out of his life forever and quit talking to God. Unmet Expectations And every area of life is deadly, but especially when it comes to our spiritual lives. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we close out this book we call 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you've been here with us, you know that 1 Corinthians was originally a letter uh, written by this guy Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Paul went into the city of Corinth, which was a cosmopolitan, metropolitan city, and there he planted a church stayed for 18 months, he left, and sometime later the church wrote a letter to Paul in 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to the church and to the letter that they wrote to him. Just to give you a timeline, if you've not been here with us, about Paul's interactions with that church. So Paul first visited Corinth sometime around 51, 52 AD, stayed for about 18 months, then he left and he went to Ephesus And then sometime later, Paul wrote a letter to the church that we do not have. That letter has been lost. Then later, he wrote a second letter to the church that we call 1 Corinthians. That was roughly around 54 AD. Then he had another visit to the church at Corinth in 56 AD. And then he wrote a third letter to the church, and we do not have that letter. Then he wrote a fourth letter to the church that we call 2 Corinthians, And then finally, Paul visited Corinth around 58 AD. So, we are looking at the second letter that Paul wrote to the church, the series that we've been in since last Easter. And today, we are looking at the final chapter, Paul's concluding words to this church, what we call chapter 16. And let me give you a warning. We are going to read a lot of verses that have names, and they have specific plans of Paul, and a lot of details, and you may be left scratching your head going, how does this apply to my life? I mean, 1 Corinthians is an occasional document, and Paul wrote a specific letter to a specific people in a specific time, and the words we're going to read today are not the ones that any of you, my guess is, have memorized before. Or these are not the these are not the verses that you will text to a friend who is discouraged as a way to encourage them. You know, These are not the ones that, that you're going to journal and write down and say, hey, remember these words because these are so powerful and will impact my walk with God. I mean, these are very specific names and instructions and plans of Paul. And you may read these and go, well, I, I, just, I just don't really know what value these have. Let me give you a couple of things to keep in mind as we read this passage today. The first is this. When Paul wrote these words, he wrote these words within a community of faith to another community of faith. In fact, the entire Bible was written within the context of communities of faith so that these individuals who were around the authors of Scripture could authenticate and could validate the words they wrote. Which is much, much different than someone saying, hey, I went up on top of this mountain, and while I was up on the mountain, an angel visited me, God spoke to me, I wrote down the words that God said, and here you are, follow me, follow these words, God told me this. I mean, how do you fact check something like that? How do you validate it? Somebody says, I went out into a field and there an angel met me and golden tablets came down and I copied the golden tablets and then the golden tablets were taken away. How how do you fact check that? You can't. But all of Scripture was written within the context of communities of faith where there were dozens or hundreds or thousands or in some cases millions of people who said, we witnessed that. We saw that. Yes, that was exactly right. Last week, we read 1 Corinthians 15, and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote about over 500 people seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now, look at this. Paul wrote this letter sometime around 54 AD, roughly 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me ask you this question. How many of you in here... Uh, are old enough to remember the event we call Y2K. Were, were, you, were you clued in during that time? You remember Y2K? When everybody was scared in 1999 that when we changed to the new millennium, when we changed to the year 2000, that everything was going to fall apart, that power grids would shut down, that banks would lose all our financial information, that basically everything would malfunction because computers didn't understand how to go from 1999 to the year 2000. And there was all this worry and all this anticipation that everything would go sideways New Year's Eve, 1999. Now again, you're old enough to remember if you were around then. Let me ask you this. December 31st, 1999, at 11.59 p.m., when it changed from that to January 1st, the year 2000, at 12 o'clock a.m., let me ask you, what happened? Nothing. That's exactly right. Nothing happened. That minute was exactly the same as the minute before. Banks didn't shut down and the power grid didn't shut down and we didn't have massive malfunctions of computers everywhere. Everything worked just fine. So um, if you are younger, so that you were not clued in during Y2K, I want you to imagine that somebody sent you an email and it said, hey, Back in the year 2000, we had this major malfunction. It's called Y2K, and the power grid shut down, and banks lost financial information. And it was just this disaster that our country experienced. If you got an email like that, how long would it take you to fact-check that email? Not long. It's only been 20 years. Go to someone older. Go to your parents. Go to someone you know who was clued in back then. You can say, hey, I got this email and somebody said that Y2K was a disaster and this whole country was shut down. Is that true? No. Anyone who was around back then could tell you "That's, that's not true. That didn't happen. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he puts names and all these different facts and all these different specific events basically daring anyone to fact-check him. 500 individuals saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul makes that claim. How hard would it have been for someone in Corinth who was considering following Christ, giving their life to Christ, how hard would it have been for them to fact-check that? Hey, Paul, we sent some people over to Israel, and we've asked around. No one remembers anything like that. Hey, Paul, you said that Peter saw the resurrected Jesus, but Peter has come through here, and we asked him, and he said, he doesn't know what you're talking about. Hey, you've put all these names of these various individuals, and we've talked to them, Paul, and they don't know what you're talking about. Easily, easily, easily. Paul could have been fact-checked about all these different things, which is so much different than someone claiming I went up to the mountain, God spoke, here, follow me. The Bible was written in the context of communities of faith where they were able to authenticate what we read. And so although these verses may seem like they don't apply, what they should do is encourage you that what we read is true. And if it was not true, there would be volumes of information written by individuals who said, we have researched this, and this is not true. Here's the other thing to keep in mind. While this seems very specific, and you're going to read all these names and think, how does this apply to me? I think we're going to see something here that very much applies to our lives, and especially when God isn't coming through the way we expect God to come through. So again, if you've got a Bible with you, it's 1 Corinthians 16. If you want to turn there, uh, we are going to begin in verse 5 this morning. Verses 1 through 4 um, are about tithing. And we're not going to cover verses 1 through 4. You are welcome. Verse 5, Paul wrote this, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Again, if you have been here with us for this series, you know that Paul first went to Corinth and then he sailed across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, what is in modern day Turkey. And while he was in Ephesus, these individuals came to see Paul with a letter from the church. And so 1 Corinthians is Paul's response back to the church. Paul here in this section says, hey, after I've been in Ephesus for a while, I would like to go up to Macedonia, or we would say Philippi. That's where the church at Philippi was located. Uh, the, The book of Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. I will go up to Philippi, and then I will come down, and I will spend time with you in Corinth. However, what we read in Acts tells us that Paul didn't do that. Those were his plans. Those were his intentions. That's what he expected to do. But Paul was unable to do that. For some reason, Paul left from Ephesus, went all the way back over here to Jerusalem, eventually left Jerusalem, went up to Antioch, and then by land, made this long journey over to Philippi and then down to Corinth. And when you read 2 Corinthians, you find that that visit to Corinth, Paul's second visit, He described as a painful visit. What made it painful, we don't know. But it was not what Paul expected. It was not what he was hoping for. And so in this section, we see Paul having plans, but those plans don't work out the way that Paul expected. Verse 8, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. So a couple of things here. Paul, in verse 9, says, A great door for effective work has opened for me. That was great. Paul went to Ephesus to share the gospel, and he says, The Lord has opened doors for me to share the gospel. And so he was excited about that. That's why he was staying in Ephesus. He was able to do what he anticipated that he would be able to do in Ephesus, except there was also many who opposed me. Now, we're not going to look at this passage. If if you are a note taker, write down Acts 19. When Paul wrote, There are many who oppose me, that was a major understatement. Essentially, everyone in Ephesus who was not a follower of Christ opposed Paul. It, it, was, it was the whole city in an uproar, ready to tear Paul from limb to limb. At one point, a riot started in this great theater in Ephesus. And all these people in Ephesus crowded into the theater, and they were shouting, and they were crying out. And Paul saw this crowd in the theater, and he said to his buddies, Hey, look, there are a whole bunch of people in the crowd. I think I'm going to go in there and share Jesus with them. Because, you know, that's what you do when there's a crowd. That's what Paul wanted to do with his tunnel vision. A bunch of people. Let's share Jesus. And fortunately, his friends had a little sense and said, Paul, you cannot go in there you will not come out alive. And so they held Paul back from going into the theater. What's clear when you read Acts 19 is that Paul had a lot of people who opposed him. And I imagine that Paul said, "Hey, God, you've you've opened doors for me to be able to share the gospel, which is great. But I've got these other people and they're so mad at me. And I'm getting I'm getting all of this persecution. People are People not only want to beat me up, they want to kill me. Life isn't working out exactly how I would have expected it to work out. Then he continues. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So Paul mentions two different individuals here. The first was Timothy. Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Paul was Timothy's mentor. Paul was sending Timothy to the Corinthians, but Paul was nervous that this church was not going to treat Timothy well. Timothy was young. Based on what we read in 1 uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Timothy may have struggled with self-confidence. And so Paul had a concern that he would send Timothy to the church at Corinth, and they just would not treat Timothy with respect. The second person he mentions is Apollos. Apollos was the pastor who followed Paul. Paul planted the church. Paul was there for eighteen months, and then Paul left, and in comes the second pastor, Apollos. And while Apollos was very smart, and by all accounts he was a really good speaker, he was not Paul. And everyone kept comparing Paul to their uh, Apollos to their former pastor, Paul, and things didn't go well for Apollos, and so. If Apollos finally was fed up, and he left, and he went and joined Paul in Ephesus. And at some point, Paul had a conversation with Apollos that went something like this. Hey, you need to go back to Corinth. It is a strategic church. They need a pastor. I want you to go back to Corinth. And Apollos said, no way. You go back to Corinth. I'm not going back there. Those people are mean. And so Paul here says, look, I strongly urged Apollos to go back. He didn't want to do it. However, Paul, ever the optimist, says he'll go, he'll come eventually, just he's not willing to come now. And so plans, again, weren't working out the way that Paul wanted them to work out. Then verse 13, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. We talked briefly about this concept last week. Paul says no matter what you're facing, stand firm, be strong, be courageous, and then above everything else, make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing it in love. Verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. So when we started this series, we talked about the the household of Stephanus. Paul baptized those individuals. They were the first converts in Corinth. And so Paul here says, hey, Stephanus and those who are in his household, they have been following Christ. They are mature believers. I want you in the church to submit to them. To submit to their authority, they are basically the elders in the church. And then he goes on, in verse seventeen, and writes this: "I was glad when Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refresh my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Now these were the men." who brought the letter to Paul when he was in Ephesus. And then Paul's letter that we call 1 Corinthians is his response to the letter that these men brought to him. Um, There, according to some scholars, is an argument that Fortunatus and Achaicus were former slaves of Stephanus, And the only reason that argument is made is because Fortunatus was a common name that former slaves would change their name to after they were freed. You recognize that that is the name Fortunate, and so they would change their name to Fortunate. And so here, if that is true, it reminds us of the fact that at the foot of the cross, everything is equalized. Paul here says these men are leaders in the church. These men are godly men, and I want you to submit to their leadership. There was a guy in the church in Corinth named Erastus. If you've been here for this series, I've talked about Erastus. Erastus was one of the wealthiest men in all of the Roman Empire. He was politically connected. Erastus um, had all kinds of power. Yet Paul here says, even to Erastus, I want you to submit spiritually to these individuals who are among the first converts even these individuals who were former slaves. Erastus, who by society was considered very powerful, a leader, shouldn't submit to anyone. Paul says, in the church, you submit to their spiritual leadership. It's a reminder that at the cross, we are all equal. I remember years ago reading a story that Jim Cimbala wrote. Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church. And he talked about a certain businessman who was in his church who was the CEO of a major corporation. And every Sunday to Thursday, this man was traveling all over the country and all over the world. He was meeting with um, different CEOs. He was in these high-level business meetings. He was very wealthy. But he made travel plans to always be home on Thursday afternoons. The reason was on Thursday nights, at the church, at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, they had bulletin stuffing parties. And he was part of the team that would sit there and they would stuff all of the bulletins that were used for the services on Sunday. And at some point, Pastor Simbala came to him and said, Hey, look, we can find someone else to do this. I mean, you don't have to change your travel plans. You don't have to, to change your business plans to do this. We can find someone else to do this. And this businessman responded to Pastor Jim Symbla and said, hey, Pastor, don't take this away from me. He said, I love doing this. All week long, I'm in these meetings, and it's all about money, and it's all about business, but on Thursday nights, I get to come, and I get to do something that might just make an eternal difference in the life of someone who comes on Sunday. And so the CEO stood there and stuffed bulletins standing right next to former prostitutes, former drug addicts, and whoever else was part of this team that stuffed bulletins. It's a reminder that that at the foot of the cross, all of us are just sinners saved by grace. That is all we are. The cross is the great equalizer. All right, verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So again, if you've been here with with us in this series, Aquila and Priscilla were husband and wife. Uh, They were Christian Jews who were kicked out of the city of Rome sometime around 50 A.D., Uh, Because the Emperor Claudius, again, it's a fact that you can go and check, that other people then could go and check. Uh, Emperor Claudius grew tired of the Christians and the Jews fighting. He didn't really understand the, uh, the whys behind the fights, and so he just kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Aquila and Priscilla made their way from Rome down to Corinth, where they linked up with Paul, and because they were tent makers like Paul they went into business with him and they supported themselves in Corinth through tent making. Then when Paul went to Ephesus, they followed him to Ephesus, but those in the church in Corinth remembered Aquila and Priscilla. And so Paul says, hey, this couple, you remember them? They send greetings. As well, the entire church here in Ephesus sends greetings to the church in Corinth. Meaning, Paul talked about his former church, in Corinth so much to the church at Ephesus that they felt like they knew these individuals. So Paul here says, hey, I I want you to know that the church here has really kind of developed a relationship with you through me. And so they send you greetings. Then Paul says, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, Kissing on the cheek... (laughs) was, in that day, our equivalent to a handshake. We could read this and say, greet one another with a holy handshake. That was how they greeted one another. By the way, it's still how in many places in Europe they greet one another. And I remember this well when we lived in Italy. This was how they greeted one another in Italy and how they still do it today. And I never, ever could get used to it. Uh, when a guy would come up and kind of lightly peck me on each cheek, if he had not shaven, oh, I, just, I, I just I couldn't handle it. There was a, there was a guy who was in our college ministry named Alex, and and Alex would come over to our apartment, or Katie and I would greet him somewhere, and he would kiss Katie on each cheek, and then he would come up and kiss me, and it just it just always gave me the willies. I I wanted to be culturally. Uh, relevant. I wanted to fit. I just, I just couldn't do it. So one day, Alex came up and he greeted both of us. And I said, "Okay, Alex. Here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a deal. Here's what we're going to do: when you see me and Katie and you greet both of us, you can kiss one of us on the cheeks, and one of us you have to shake our hands. And I'll let you choose which one you want to kiss and which one you want to shake hands with." Well, he absolutely loved Katie, and so it was a no-brainer for him. He said, "I kiss Katie." Shake hands with you. Good. And from then on out, we were fine. It's just, it's a cultural uh, way of greeting. And so Paul here says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Then verse 21, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Paul dictated most, perhaps all of his letters. This, This was... This was common in that day. Many people believe that Paul had some problems with his eyesight, um, and and that's why he dictated the letters. Uh, And and so we see Paul uh, making indication of this often. In Romans, in fact, uh, verse 22, uh, a guy named Tertius kind of throws in his own little greeting. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Uh, so Romans is from Paul, but Tertius here says, hey, you get a shout out for me as well. But at the end, to verify that it was from Paul, he writes in his own hand. It's, it's, it's almost like someone else typed the letter and then he signed it. That's what Paul does here at the end. And then finally, last three verses. or Yeah, last three. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Two things as we close out this letter. One, Paul here in verse 22 gives what is the most important thing in all of his letter. Think about all the instructions, all of the details that he gives in the letter, all of the encouragements and all of the things that he wants the church to do. And then in verse 22, he says, hey, here's what it all boils down to. If somebody does not love the Lord, then they are cursed. In other words, the great dividing line among humanity is whether or not you're a follower of Christ. Do you love Jesus Christ? And at the end of your days, at the end of all of our days, that is the only thing that really matters. And Paul here says, keep this in mind. For those who do not follow Christ, they are cursed. For those who do, they are loved by God. However, there's one more thing I want to point out. And this is something that will help us understand at least one of the reasons life doesn't always go the way that we would expect. When you're following God, when you're doing what you're supposed to do, when you're being obedient to God, do you ever feel like, well, life should go well for me? I do. When I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to do, then then I believe that life should go well. And certainly there is some truth to that. There is uh, this sense of when we are obedient, that God blesses our obedience. However, as we've seen in the life of Paul, and as we've seen in countless other examples in Scripture, life doesn't always go the way that we would expect. And sometimes it can really crush us. You know, we think that God ought to do this, and God doesn't do that. We pray and we expect God to answer our prayer and God doesn't come through. And we are naturally left scratching our heads and saying, Why? God, why? Why haven't you come through the way that I expect you to come through? Here's one of the reasons. There are many, but here's one. Right here at the end of verse 22, Paul writes, Come, Lord. If you've got a paper Bible with you, you can look at the bottom. There's probably a footnote there. And it says... This is a Greek transliteration of the Aramaic word maranatha. Uh, it was a word that the Greeks adopted straight from the Aramaic. Uh, they transliterated it like we do with the word hors d'oeuvres to indicate the appetizers that are, that are served before a meal. Uh, we transliterate the French word into English. We don't say the literal French translation. The Greeks took this word, the Greek Christians took this word from the Aramaic and they adopted it into their language. Maranatha means come Lord or come Lord quickly. Here's what Paul is saying here. Sometimes when life doesn't go the way that we expect it to go, it's because God wants us to remember that this is not our permanent home. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a permanent home, but this is not it. This is not the place where you will spend eternity. And sometimes God allows difficult situations in life to remind us that this is not the place that we should long for to be forever. And sometimes as American Christians, we miss this. In fact, most of the time as American Christians we would say something like, yes, I want Jesus to come back and come, Lord, and we're excited about the second coming, but if you don't mind, if you could wait just a little while, at least until after the game tonight, because i got to see who wins the big game tonight. So if you want to come, come on Monday. you know. Or, or if you don't mind, would you wait until our vacation that we have saved up for and then we have planned for, and it's a big one this summer, and we're excited about it, and so Jesus come, but wait until after summer. Or Jesus, I want you to come, but I'd really like to get married first. And so... If you could wait until after I get married, then I would love for you to come. And when life is going well, we get very comfortable here in this place that's not our permanent home. Yet when life goes sideways, when things aren't going well, when we experience incredible pain in our lives, what do we do? We cry out like Paul, Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord, come, come quickly. And it reminds us that our longing should be not for here, but for heaven. When life goes sideways, many times that is when we pray the most, Lord, come quickly.